The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Podcast for America, a new show from Panoply about the human feeding frenzy of a presidential campaign cycle. This is a special teaser edition of the podcast. The full show will be launching on its own feed in mid-May. I'm Alex Wagner, host of the MSNBC program Now with Alex Wagner in New York City. With me here is the national correspondent for The New York Times Magazine, author of the essential Washington guidebook, This Town, Mark Leibovich. Hey, Mark. Hi, Alex. And joining us from Washington, D.C., right in the middle of the frenzy is Annie Lowry, contributing editor at New York Magazine. Hey, Annie. Hey, guys. So we decided to do this special preview edition of the Podcast for America for one simple reason. This past weekend was one of Washington's most hallowed and questionable rituals, the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Given that we'll be focusing on the culture of American politics, there is no better place to start than this Mardi Gras of media, celebrity, politics, and posturing. But instead of beads, they throw around empty compliments. After that, we'll move on to the real Hillary. Okay, on to our first topic, the White House Correspondents' Dinner. The three of us were there this weekend wearing our finest, though it should be noted that Mark is still wearing his tuxedo. <laughs> and I wasn't there, actually. I wasn't at the dinner. Just I was wearing never, it in protest. I was never wearing a tuxedo until tonight. Alex was there. I was there, and yeah. I was wearing, it should be known, a leather jacket over my dress, which everybody had lots to say about it because that was not usually what people wear. But I was going for Madonna like a virgin. You were passing out Marlboro lights over by the I dumpster. I had fingerless lace gloves <laughs> and a bunch of jelly bracelets. No, but seriously, was this conscious or I, was well, this actually a fashion statement? Okay, or? so if you haven't been to the White House Correspondence Center, it's like 14 degrees in that room. Oh, so okay. And it's always really cold. And I also happened to be wearing a floral dress that made me sort of look like an extra in the movie The Help. So <laughs> so I figured the only way to counteract that was to wear something warm and maybe something that would balance out the chintz. And so I wore that. But, you know, I think it's a good jumping off point. Not really, but it's sort of a jumping off point to talk about the the White House Correspondents' Dinner itself. And so everybody sort of secretly agrees that there's a lot of it that's gross. And yet we continue on with it. And defying convention still to this day, I think, seems fairly edgy in and around the dinner itself. So I feel like this was the first year that there was broad agreement that seeped into perhaps even the public consciousness that this event has jumped the shark, that presidents should refuse to do this, that has just reached heights of ridiculousness. All of the worst things that people think about Washington actually happened in this weekend. And I feel like it was actually kind of publicly acknowledged, which was previously tacitly acknowledged. But maybe you guys feel differently about this. Well, I, I would say that it's not such a dirty little secret that this is an abomination. Sure. Yeah, I mean, this is not like a novel. Yeah, no. But people still go to it, which well, is like, yeah. it's so weird to people me. People still, it's sort of a perfect example of the kind of bad, destructive, embarrassing habit that Washington cannot break. I mean, start with the fact that literally millions of dollars are spent on this thing. If you count like the, maybe two dozen pre-parties, after-parties, and what have you. And, you know, the question of what exactly are we celebrating is never really answered. Now, what I think was distinct about this year was you had this beautiful juxtaposition about real life breaking out in Nepal that day and Baltimore that night. And CNN and a number of other cable networks, but we'll focus on CNN because they're supposedly the global news network leader or whatever it's called. They actually did not cut from journalists celebrating itself in the correspondence dinner to Baltimore. Nothing. 
I mean, my Twitter feed at that moment. And so I couldn't, I guess, am I allowed to invoke my Twitter feed? It was yes. just an incredible juxtaposition of, ooh, uh, you know, I just got, you know, a selfie with Bradley Cooper versus nothing from Baltimore. So, or more, yeah. you know, violence in Baltimore. It was embarrassing. So the week before, I was actually out reporting a story in San Francisco. I was talking to this guy who works at a startup, and he was invited by a news organization to come attend the dinner, and he was all excited. He was like, I get to see the president, and I'm so excited to see this huge journalistic award. And I was like, what huge journalistic award? And he was like, well, it's a really big night for journalists, right? (laughs) And I was like, no, 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 no. You're there as like candy for the advertisers. And he was really deflated. He was like kind of upset. And I I felt sort of good and sort of bad about bursting his bubble. I feel like you're totally right with Nepal and everything else going on. Somehow this year felt different. It felt especially pathetic. Let me say one thing as a former White House correspondent myself, as someone who filed pool reports and sat in the briefing room, not for a career, but for a little while. I think it's really important that the White House correspondents be allowed to have some sort of confab, right? I think that in and of itself is good. And I agree with you guys both that the branding and the marketing and the hoopla around it is disgrusting. That said, the thing that I think is, (laughs) you know, in many ways on parallel in its offense is the White House Correspondents Association has been pushing pretty publicly for more access to the president in the briefings and generally in the information flow. And here is an amazing opportunity for them to really make the case, press the president in a public way. And while there were some overtures to that end by Christy Parsons, and I thought they were good, that was not pushed in the way that it could have been and should have been. And then I would say secondarily to your friend, Annie, those scholarships are meaningful, but they could be a lot more meaningful if real dollars were put behind them and that some of the advertisers that spend millions around the event actually put some sure. money towards to journalism yeah, and, and, and covering the, on the White debt House. debt of this whole thing is to like lure celebrities and powerful business people here and then stare at them and then like hobnob with people that you report on. True. But okay. Well, first of all, you could take the real dollars spent on entertainment, this thing, and at the parties surrounding them and put them towards scholarships and a lot more people would get scholarships. So let's say that and let's be all high-minded, but acknowledge that. <laughs> I mean, look, I think scholarships... Well, I mean, I, I, of course, we're supposed to say that, yes. but in an age of a lot of philanthropic endeavors on the part of corporations, that should actually be a part of this Absolutely. and could be. And it could be kind of shall I say, badass. I mean, you could have awesome journalistic, investigative, you know, journalism is one area that could use a lot more money. Here's what I think would be badass. One, a president skipping it. I think that's right. Two, certainly not a network covering it on a night when news is covered. I mean, three, get rid of the stupid fucking red carpet. Yes. That was our first swear on the podcast. And we can do that. No, the red red carpet... Oh, my fucking God. I mean, I actually heard the sentence last year on TV. Wolf, what are you wearing? And he looked at them and very straightly said, Armani. (laughs) All right, great. Well, but this is, Mark, and I'm sure you have plenty of thoughts about this. You know, Washington is Hollywood for ugly people is the adage, right? Now, here's a chance for Washington to just be its kind of own Hollywood and you can take out the ugly person part. Look, we should have a dinner. We should have parties. It just shouldn't be inflicted on the world or a source of the decadence that it is. And now I will get off my high horse. And no. If we're getting on our low horse, my favorite part of this weekend <laughs> is that <laughs> when you sometimes go to these parties, there will be random celebrities who do not know what to do with themselves there. Oh, yeah. And they cling to each other and literally hide in the corners so that they don't have to talk to normals. And it's the only thing that makes me 
happy all weekend. It's Did you just hilarious. refer to them as normals, Annie? No, no, no. I refer to us as normals. <laughs> them, us. Normals. I will. Yeah, I do think that that is a sad part of it, too. I mean, you see celebrities who are stuck on their phones the entire time and or have no idea who Susan Rice is. And that is right. a shame. Right. Actually, you know what, though? In fairness, I love almost year in and year out. I love the president's comedy routine. And I think it's an extremely revealing speech. I mean, I think any president's comedy routine could be very revealing. And I forgot who said this, but in a way, the correspondence dinner speech by the president is the state of the union of comedy. Right. I mean, that's when you sort of get a real window into what he is thinking on things. And I thought the president was terrific, as he usually is. I mean, he has very good writers, very good delivery. And I think that's always worth watching. Yeah, I also think it's interesting that they have usually traditionally the entertainer closes it out because the president doesn't want to have to follow the entertainer. But in this case, I mean, President Obama is generally better than most of the entertainers who are enlisted to give the remarks. I mean, I thought Cecily Strong was strong, but. The president, especially in that moment of the anger translator bit, has a facility, a gift in terms of comedic timing that is, I feel like, unparalleled in the modern presidency. He has excellent comedic timing. I actually thought that George W. Bush was pretty good at this, too. You know, one thing that's been apparent for a little while is that he has had this, like, fuck it attitude. The entire administration has had this fuck it attitude. And he finally Wait, kind of came out and, and said that. And and the way that this has come <laughs> forward beforehand has been that, you know, he, for a little while, kept on leaving the White House and, like, not telling anybody, like, going to run and The bear coffee. is loose. The bear is loose. And he described himself himself as a caged circus bear that got out of his cage and ran away, which I thought was like the most wonderful, insane, poignant way for a president to describe himself. And yeah, so, you know, he came out and kind of acknowledged what has been apparent for some time that he he's just moved into this phase where he's like shrugging and yeah, sort of doing what he wants. I actually saw him at a 7-Eleven at three o'clock in the morning that night <laughs> at, at a mic standing over the microwave making a Jamaican beef patty. Yeah. It was like amazing. I walked into the 7-Eleven. Getting some taquitos. There was like a bunch of Secret Service agents. And, you know, he seemed a little tipsy and kind of looked at me (laughs) and I looked at him. And um, (laughs) no, it was a bizarre sight. But I guess that's sort of the new normal. I will say, I mean, and you hear that the bucket list is kind of sort of a real thing. Obviously, legislatively, there are people inside the White House. I talked to a number. I talked to a number of administration officials, but I did because that's the other gross part about the whole thing is you actually talk to administration officials which may not actually be that gross. But there is a spirit of, hey, why not? Because we got 16 months left. And I guess I wonder, is the lame duck presidency now actually the most powerful part of the presidency insofar as the lame duck session of Congress is actually the most productive session of Congress? Like, is this actually the new normal that a president can only really do what he wants to do and be who he wants to be after he doesn't have to run anymore? Yeah, because, I mean, there is a conventional wisdom that you can only do it at the beginning, but actually he— Maybe it's only at the end. And, it, you know, George W. Bush almost got immigration passed in 2000, what, six, seven, whenever that was. Six. I mean, he got it through the Senate. And I think that the interesting thing is that these things have been running on two tracks, right? Congress has gotten Congress's stuff done. The administration has gotten executive action stuff done. So it's not that President Obama has managed to push major legislation through. It's just that they haven't been messing with each other as much, I guess is the way that I put it. Well, but I, if we're talking about executive action or just generally postures around issues and truth-telling on policies. I mean, I think that's going to come in this time frame, in the waning hours of his presidency. But what better way to do it than comedy? 
I mean, yes. I do think the president, <laughs> well, seriously, it's a great way to be honest. And I don't think he could have or would have had the anger translator at the beginning of his presidency because it would have been honestly too close now, to home. What did you guys think of the anger translator? Because I didn't get it because I don't watch, watch Key and Peele. I don't either, but uh, I kind of knew about it. Because despite our differences, we count on the press to shed light on the most important issues of the day. And we can count on Fox News to terrify old white people with some nonsense. <laughs> It became fairly evident at that point why he was using the anger translator. And clearly the anger translator is actually speaking for the president. I do love the lame umbrage from the right. Ah, see, he really has. I mean, Byron An angry York black wrote man. this. Yes. Byron York wrote this column in which he took great umbrage. Oh, see, this is why he's so angry. Oh, for God's sake. I know, man. <laughs> Hot Take Express. That's the stupidest thing I've ever... I'm sorry. Yes, of course he's like a restrained person. Sources he's say. the president. I really liked it. I'm a big fan of Key and Peele. I recommend that you guys look at the aerobics video if you have I've been time. told to look at that and Substitute Teacher. Yeah. Substitute Teacher is great. <laughs> very, I have very seen good. that. Balake. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> just, I'll just say balake. That is what I will say. The part of the president's remarks at the dinner that I thought were going to get the most or get some pickup or at least dissection was when he talks about how it's hard out there for a lot of Americans. For example, I have, a, I have one friend. Just a few weeks ago, she was making millions of dollars a year, and she's now living out of a van in Iowa. <laughs> the subtle skewerings of Hillary Clinton... They were done, I think, in, you know, with good intentions, but there was a little edge to them that I thought people were going to have fun dissecting in terms of their intrapersonal relations. Yeah, that was beautiful. And similarly, the jab that he took at Dick Cheney. A few weeks ago, Dick Cheney says he thinks I'm the worst president of his lifetime, <laughs> which is interesting because I think Dick Cheney is the worst president of my lifetime. <laughs> Quite a coincidence. I feel like the Obama administration has been sort of careful actually not to jab at George W. Bush on a personal level, even while they obviously don't care for many of the policies. But that was unusually cutting, I thought. Well, Cheney's fair game. I mean, Bush, yeah, I I mean that's although right. Bush actually, he, he like went after Obama in some speech to like a bunch of Jewish Republicans in Vegas. Like yesterday was the oh, it was really? a New York Post. So it had to be oh. true. What's great about these things is that the president can find a straw man by looking at the most over the top things a bunch of Republicans have said recently. He said, Michelle Bachman recently said that my presidency would bring about the end of days and the end of civilization. And then he had that pause and he kind of smiled and he actually cracked up a little bit before, which is kind of a Chris Rock thing. And he said, now that's a legacy. <laughs> that's big. I mean, Lincoln, Washington, they didn't do that. All right. Let's end it there. Let us know what you think about the White House Correspondents' Dinner. I mean, really, let us know. Email us at podcastforamerica at gmail.com. That's right. We own that address. Moving on to the second topic, 2016. Hillary Clinton's team is fending off suggestions about improper financial dealings while she was serving as Secretary of State, as the Clinton Foundation is issuing mea culpas for not having properly filed five years of financial disclosures. So I'll begin with the Democrats here, Mark. I know we're going to get to the Republicans. Which is the real Hillary? This one or the one that likes to get around in a Scooby van? Oh, boy. I mean... <laughs> 
obviously it's complicated. <laughs> I, I think what the financial disclosure thing is, it's just part of the overall headache that is her trying to run for president given all that is going on. Now, the authenticity trope here, which is something that all candidates face, is something that we're going to be grappling with throughout. Who was it? John Chait in New York Magazine the other day had, had this really good essay on the disastrous post-presidency of Bill Clinton. And if you want, I mean, the media or the Republicans could, like, find an example of this and sort of try to wrap it around Hillary's campaign rightfully, you know, a couple of times a week. So, yeah, Scooby's van, great. But, <laughs> I mean, it's part of the cycle of distraction that is, I think, going to be a vicious part of this campaign. Annie, the piece that Mark's referring to also says, basically, so effectively, if there's no quid pro quo between the Clinton Foundation and Secretary Clinton while she was at the State Department, if the headline is just, the Clintons are disorganized and greedy, isn't that bad enough? What are your thoughts on that? I think that's right. And I think that there's a lot of questions when you step back and you figure that Hillary Clinton has wanted this for a long time and has been preparing for this for a really long time. Why on earth did they make a lot of the decisions that they made? And the truth is that I don't know that we're ever going to get very satisfactory answers to those questions. But it seems to be that she's in a somewhat defensive posture. She doesn't trust the press. And that actually leads her in part to make kind of bad decisions. So, you know, with her email, the stuff about the Clinton Foundation, I'm still just slightly bewildered by. And it might be that none of this actually really goes over the line, that frankly, they were just greedy and disorganized. But nevertheless, it's causing people to step back and say, oh, my goodness, like, what's the judgment here? I think that ultimately, uh, the real question is how much this bleeds into the minds of voters who are actually making up their minds and who a Clinton campaign is actually going to have to persuade, as opposed to just sort of solidifying the opinions of, of people who already know a fair amount about her and like her or hate her. Yeah, Joe Trippi is quoted in uh, the Glenn Thrush's piece in Politico and basically asks, did you really have to make that speech right before she announced, Bill? Did you really have to do that one last event? Couldn't oh, you have been a I little know. bit more disciplined in who you took the money from? Couldn't you have just said no a little bit more often? And you know, one of the things that Glenn's piece looks at is Hillary's attitude towards money. She grew up in a really frugal home. Money was always a concern. She, of course, famously said a few months ago that the Clintons were dead broke after leaving the White House. They famously had to take out a bridge loan from Terry McAuliffe, something no one should have to do. And that money has been part of their narrative since they were in Little Rock, that they've worried about it, that they've perseverated over it. But really, and I say they, mostly Hillary has, that Bill is into power and access, but hasn't been as transfixed or focused on the issue of money as Hillary has been. And I guess, you know, when we're looking at a presidential campaign that has to make a lot of decisions about money, not only its own spending of it, right? Robbie Mook, the campaign chair, is there are new reports that he's being especially he's really frugal thrifty. and very, very thrifty. Yeah. But also, and I would ask both of you this, you know, Hillary is talking about she has adopted the cloak of a progressive. And that sounds like I'm not giving her, I mean, adopted the cloak. She's wearing the progressive hair shirt, okay, and perhaps genuinely, and wants to take on money in politics. And that's a sort of different money. That's Wall Street money. That's campaign finance reform. That's super PACs. But is she compromised in tackling the issue? of the wealthy having undue influence as her and her husband deal with the semi-scandal of their own around giving wealthy people maybe too much influence in their orbit. 
I would say yes, 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 <laughs> yes, and yes. I mean, it's not so much the progressive hair shirt as it is the Elizabeth Warren channeler about the system being rigged, about the shrinking middle class. And you can't say that. I mean, who's it being rigged by? It's being rigged by a lot of the people who are paying you millions of dollars one, to, you know, get you to speak, you know, before their groups, or two, you know, contribute to your campaign. The second thing is, I mean, campaign finance reform, great. I mean, it's a very, very popular issue. But on the same day she announced that, you know, we learned that, yeah, she'll be working closely with super PACs. She'll be taking lobbyist money. She'll be obviously working with Wall Street. I mean, I would like to know exactly what she said in the meeting with all of her Wall Street donors saying, all right, look, guys, next few months, I'm going to be bashing you, you know, I mean, wink, nod. I mean, you could say the same about President Do you think Obama. it's that yeah. I'd love to publicly finance my campaign, but uh, I'm not but, going to until but everybody But do you really does. think that it is <laughs> um, that explicit? It might be. I mean, Jim Messina actually had a meeting like that with a bunch of Wall Street. I think this was in Bloomberg, like right around maybe 2012, where he actually said that. Now, I don't know if it's ever said that explicitly, but... Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, they are very, very, very close to a lot of the questionable interests that they are now rhetorically going to be, you know, running a campaign against. And look, it's a hypocrisy that I think many politicians, if not most politicians, have to deal with. In her case, it happens to be a little bit more glaring. And I think one of the the most interesting things about the money questions that are coming up now is that Bill Clinton went and did what you know, so many politicians who are in high office, including presidents, including, you know, secretaries of state and treasury and everything else do when they leave office, which is that they go and they make the money that they didn't make while they were holding their shit together in order to get that office. And that's the thing that's hard for her, right? Like, I'm not sure. I was thinking about this. What would have been the elegant way for the Clintons to make a ton of money, even with her running for office? And I think that there were probably ways to do it. And a lot of the missteps that they made were just kind of egregious, but it certainly wouldn't have been the kind of money that they've been rolling in over the past couple of years. I mean, the way that people make money when they leave office is that they go take these big corporate jobs or they, you know, are consulting, right? They're kind of mercenary or they're giving speeches. And they went and they did that. And there are bits of the narrative that seep out. I mean, it's one thing to be giving a speech to a bunch of you know, investment bankers. It's another to be sitting at a small dinner with the president of Kazakhstan, who has a terrible human rights record, and effectively giving him a smokescreen to monitor an elections board. I mean, there were things said by Bill Clinton that The New York Times reported on that are also threads of Peter Schweizer's book, Clinton Cash, that cast an, a questionable light on just the sort of moral choices they've made in the people they hobnob with and with whom they socialize and to some degree have given legitimacy to on the world stage, right? I mean, and I guess if you're an independent, right, and this is back to the original question, and you are wondering, you know, what kind of people are they going to be when they get to the White House, the quid pro quo may not actually matter. Totally not. I mean, one of the sad statements about our system now is that part of the deal of becoming president or vice president of the United States is that you basically get unlimited money as soon as you leave. I mean, I remember George W. Bush in an interview towards the end of his presidency when asked the first thing he was going to do, what's his first priority after leaving office? And he very nakedly said, I don't don't think he was actually naked, but he nakedly said, my first step is to replenish the coffers. 
And, you know, <laughs> Ronald Reagan gave like a million dollar speech or something in Japan or something. So, yeah, that is part of the deal. I mean, it's a far cry from Harry Truman going on this ride across the country without Secret Service protection with his wife in which he was pulled over by a state trooper in Pennsylvania for driving too slow and then moved back <laughs> to Independence, Missouri. But, no, it is part of the deal. I just wish it weren't so damn egregious. I mean, I'm look, I mean, there's a definitely a hap- – there should be a happy medium between Jimmy Carter – you know, building houses and what Bill Clinton has created, you know, which I think is the new standard of decadence and frankly tacking. Let let me just say, and I want to get Annie's thoughts on this. I will say the Clinton Foundation has done some really good projects. And I, you know, worked in the nonprofit space for a long time. And the level of scrutiny that is afforded in terms of what these nonprofits do and how their money is granted out is pretty intense. That said, it seems like a fairly discussable fuck up <laughs> that they have to refile their financial disclosures because they've made transparency such a hallmark of their dealings, right? I think it, it's only fair in this in the context of this decision, and Annie, I'll go to you on this, that we talk about the Republican field because Jeb Bush in the last 72 hours has at once said, you don't need a billion dollars to run for president. And then the same day in a meeting behind closed doors with donors, trumpeted the fact that he will have made, his campaign will have made or raised more money in this quarter than any modern Republican campaign in history. Now, most of that money is being channeled to Jeb's super PAC, which raises the question, you know, is this the new model? Candidates get to say they are, Jeb Bush is, by the way, not a declared candidate until he is a declared candidate. If he runs. If he runs. (laughs) But until that point, he can help coordinate the activities of the super PAC and his proto-campaign. So Jeb Bush gets all the luxuries of the super PAC, all the money and the power that comes with it, and none of the downside, which is to say any of the smear campaigns or the dirty politics, he can say, that was not my campaign. That's a super PAC. I have nothing to do with them. I mean, is that the new model? And is that any better? Absolutely. And I think it comes with tremendous downsides. And until there are legal changes, which are certainly not going to happen until after 2016, if they happen, this is the world that we are living in. It is, in some ways, an ideal setup for the kind of dirty tricks, smearing, money-covered black hole, like the worst <laughs> possible election setup that you could imagine we we now have. And it's just going to be a colossal amount of money spent. But to you know, kind of the earlier point you made, I I do think it, it's true that there's going to be no such thing as hypocrisy in these campaigns once we get down to, you know, a handful of candidates slinging accusations at each other. I would note that Jeb Bush went and did some kind of strange things to make a little bit of money when he was uh, out of office. Josh Green at Bloomberg has done great reporting at that. And I think that the Republicans are just going to constantly bash Hillary. It seems like they are developing a new narrative to hit her with, with all of this stuff. It fits in pretty nicely with the old ones. And it's just going to be relentless. I think, for the next 18 months. Do you think, Mark, that we know the real Jeb? Do you think you know the real Hillary? And do you think you know the real Jeb? He's Absolutely. very hungry. I He's have, starving. I feel like I know both of them really, really well. What, who's the no, real Jeb? Um, Would he get into a Scooby van? I exchanged emails with him in 2003, according to his revealed emails. <laughs> Would he get into a Scooby van? Would Jeb Bush get into a Scooby van and run as a grandfather? No, I don't think he would. And why not? Because that's already taken by Hillary Clinton. <laughs> but would he do his version? Grandmother. Would, would he, he do... take his own magical oh, sh- mystery tour? Yeah, maybe. 
I mean, I think Jeb Bush gets some credit for not contorting himself too shamelessly. He's standing by his original position on, say, immigration. Hasn't really, you know, egregiously flip-flopped on anything that I can see. But just culturally, I mean, he's not actually emphasizing, you know, any anti-gay rhetoric. I mean, I think so that's been somewhat refreshing. So, yeah, based on what I just said, I clearly know the real Jeb. <laughs> Don't you guys? I'm excited to get to know the the real Jeb. I feel like we'll hear a lot about the real Jeb in the coming months. Do you feel the two of you will like get to know? I just let me just let me be clear. It's amazing that the dynasty that seems to, at least in our podcast for America, have the most work ahead of itself in terms of rebranding and establishing itself as a good branded American politics might be the Clinton brand and not the Bush brand. I would agree with that, especially because, I mean, Jeb Bush has the very legitimate deniability of having gone away since 2006 or whenever he left office. Yeah. Right? He can just say, that was my brother. That's, you know, legit. I mean, it's just a name. I mean, Hillary and Bill have been in public life. They have Together. been embroiled. They have been entangled in, you know, the same financial dealings. I mean, obviously, you know, they talk a lot. So I think that's a much easier thing for Jeb Bush to do than Hillary Clinton. Jeb Bush's promise to bring George W. Bush and let him live in the White House also is just really a perplexing one at the outset. I know, man. I'm sleeping <laughs> in a Lincoln Small, bedroom. Small, little, red, wooden house out back. That rename, has, rename that the Lincoln bedroom. has a little George written His on Hermitage. a milk bones shaped wow. dog bone over the... Nice. I'm kidding. Rename the Lincoln house. bedroom, the George W. Bush bedroom and have George W. sleep there. There'll be mutiny wants. in the streets. Understanding the issues that the Clintons are having right now and Hillary Clinton is having right now as being sort of a taste of the questions that are kind of come up about Bill's role in a Hillary administration, I think that this is kind of just the beginning of this, right? She's answering a lot of questions that have to do with his behavior already. The questions abound, Annie. We're going <laughs> to we're going to wrap up that segment and move on to our rapid fire crowd-pleasing round, which we're calling This Could Get Me Fired, but wherein we all go around and say quickly one thing that could get us fired, but Mark, let's start with you. I will say this, and actually I think I will do something that actually maybe takes Annie down with me, although Annie does not <laughs> Annie does not work for the New York Times anymore, so she is not subject to an explicit policy that we not attend the White House Correspondents' Dinner. I did not attend the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Now, unwritten in that rule at the paper is that you don't attend any parties. I attended at least two parties over the weekend, actually just two parties, and one of them very late on Saturday night I ran into Annie at. And um, we were only discussing policy. We were discussing how we were going to volunteer the next day. And only the most <laughs> high-minded things went on. But no, in all seriousness, in the vein of hypocrisy and calling others out for hypocrisy and maybe getting in trouble with my employer, which is that inspired the whole thing. I attended an after party and saw some of my friends there. Wow. I was underdressed, though. I was seriously underdressed. That is really... Explosive, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> so my understanding is that you're wearing a tux in order to record this podcast. I am wearing a tux. I am going to a dinner afterwards, but I think it's actually very apt, and I was sort of hoping you guys would wear gowns. <laughs> well, we're wearing gowns in our mind, Mark. Okay. Annie, what could get you fired? So first of all, I'd like to note that I did not realize, actually, I knew that it was true that, that reporters of the New York Times do not attend the dinner. I did not realize that they were also implicitly not supposed to attend the parties because I would need more than my fingers and toes, I think, to count the number of New York Times employees I saw skulking around this weekend. They need an enforcer on that. I will serve as that role. I will be the enforcer. <laughs> This could get me fired. I have not finished Peter Schweisser's book. I've started it, but I have not finished it. 
This could get me fired. I haven't even picked it up. This could get me fired. I actually read it. Actually, that's not true. But it sounded rhythmically perfect for the segment. So I'm going to go with it. All right, guys. I mean, we all have a lot to say, but we actually do need to stop taping this podcast because America needs to move on to other podcasts, even though this is the one specifically for America. That is it for the <laughs> teaser special edition of Podcasts for America. Our producer is Mike Volo. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please do let us know what you think of the show. We'll be launching a full series in mid-May, so stay tuned. Our email address, once again, is podcastforamerica at gmail.com. For Mark Leibovich and Annie Lowry, I'm Alex Wagner. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening, America. America.